In this second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul has been providing us clarity in regard to the day of the Lord, especially in light of current events. Certainly he was doing that for the church in Thessalonica, showing clarity to the church about what was going on in their life, the current events around them, and how that intersected with what God says in his word about things regarding the future. He clarified the events around Jesus' return and how the gathering of God's people to Christ relates to the day of the Lord and the eventual appearing of Jesus. He clarified the evidence that would indicate whether the day of the Lord has come or not. And Paul also clarified how salvation relates to the day of the Lord. All of that we've been looking at for a number of weeks in this second chapter. So what is it that Paul is doing in these last two verses? Well, here Paul is still making some clarification. He's clarifying how his listeners should actually respond to all of this. And we see it in the way Paul prays. Some commentators note that when you come to these last verses, they're a typical Pauline benediction. It's a typical Pauline benediction that sums up everything that he's been saying and it actually anticipates what's going to come in chapter 3. So in a prayerful way, he's prayerfully reminding them that you you don't have to be shaken, you don't have to be disturbed as they were according to verse 2. Because the Lord is coming in justice towards sin, and that coming in justice towards sin has not yet begun. And the Father has loved you in salvation, so you have nothing to fear and every reason to be encouraged. And he's also anticipating what he's about to address when he prays for them to be strengthened in every good work and word, because he's about to address in chapter 3 those who, because of their fear, are actually retreating from the church and retreating from even their responsibilities. But I want us to look a little more carefully at these last two verses because they're not merely a Pauline literary device. They're not just simply a Pauline writing habit. It's not just a summation and a transition. These two verses are more pastoral in concern and theological in their devotion. They're pastoral in concern because what he urges his hearers to know and do in this chapter, he's actually begging God now. He's begging God in prayer for God to actually take these words and make them effective in their hearts. They're theological in devotion because Paul knows it actually requires God to make the truth that he's taught come alive in their hearts. And he's dependent in prayer on that. It's what some theologians often refer to as the wish prayer. What Paul wishes for them, he prays about intensely for them. Have you ever heard the preacher at the end of the sermon, and it seems like he's getting more preaching time by praying about everything he's just said for an hour? You say, yeah, I've heard that a few times here. Now I have Pauline reason to do it. It's right here. Sometimes you might wonder to yourself, is this just Brett trying to get a couple more minutes of preaching in and doing it with prayer? 
Or I've even heard some, they use it as almost a form of manipulation to kind of work the audience. Well, I hope I'm not using prayer as some kind of a manipulative tool at the conclusion of every sermon. In my heart, I am thinking about what we just said, what we've just heard, and I am absolutely confident that the only way that the truths that we study together actually take root in our hearts is if God himself actually enlivens our hearts to see what we need to see, to feel what we need to feel, and to be motivated with what we need to be motivated with, to apply it, to respond to it. You ever been discipling someone? Or maybe this is true in parenting? Or maybe it's just a general conversation with another Christian one-on-one, maybe in a small group. And you've talked through the scripture. And you saw their challenge and, and you began to give them really practical ways from the scripture to respond to the trial of their heart. If you've been involved in those discipling relationships and you see them and you look into their eyes and, and it, they just kind of look glazed over. They hear what you're saying, but they're not really hearing what you're saying, right? They're still clinging to their problem, even though you've given them a perfect solution, I'm sure. What, what do you say? When you're finishing up that meeting where you've been meeting to talk about this problem, what are you, you going to say? When you close in prayer, what are you going to say? My guess is you're going to pray about the things that you just talked about. That's what Paul is doing. What he's doing in these final two verses of this second chapter of Second Thessalonians, he's praying for the flock to apply what they have now heard. It is his pastoral concern for their hearts and theological devotion to God's involvement put on display for us. Every word is connected to what he has just urged in chapters 1 through 2 and it anticipates what he will say in chapter 3 and it's delivered in sincere prayer to God that God will accomplish these things in their hearts. So that makes these verses a model for us, doesn't it? A model of how to effectively pray for God's people to apply God's word. What are you going to do tomorrow morning when you begin to pray for the people that you've had interaction with today? As you walk through the church directory, as you think about meetings that you'll have this week with each other and times you'll get together, how will you pray for them to actually apply what we have all heard together? We talk about it in our growth groups. How do we pray that God might make it effective? Here's the model. So what's involved in this model of effectively praying for God's people to apply his word? Let's look this morning at four different elements in effectively praying for God's people to actively apply God's word. Four different elements that we'll see in these two verses of how to effectively pray for God's people to actively apply the word that they have just heard. This is immediately practical for us. How do we do it? Well, let's look together at these four elements. The first we find in just the opening phrase of verse 16, and it's this, rehearse who God is in light of what God asks. I want you to think through this. All of verse 16 is really a rehearsal of who God is. It's a description over and over of the nature and character of God himself. 
Who is he? This is Paul rehearsing who God is in light of what God asks. In fact, this is a common thing to see in prayer across the Bible. It is common that before requests are made, there's a reminder of who is it that we are actually about to ask for these things. I was thinking through a number of examples, and there are so many, especially if you go into the Old Testament and you you look at the different aspects of prayer and even illustrations of prayer that you see, and I was just musing on one, might be a somewhat obscure one that you've read through several times and passed over easily, but do you remember when Solomon, David's son, who assumed the throne as king in Israel, was about to dedicate the temple that he had erected. The Lord did not allow David to erect the temple. David prepared for that to be built, accumulated all of the things necessary, all of the materials necessary, all the workers necessary. But Solomon was the one who actually got to see the temple erected. And one of the most beautiful prayers you will ever see prayed in the Old Testament is when Solomon begins to pray in dedicating the temple. And as I was reading through it, I I think this is a perfect illustration of what it means to rehearse who God is from the word before you ask him to do anything. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, when Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, it says in verse 12, and in the presence of the assembly of Israel, he spread out his hands, which was the typical way to lead a congregation in prayer, showing dependence on the Lord. In verse 14, I want you to listen carefully to what he says. You can look there if you want or just listen to it. But Second Chronicles six fourteen, he said, O Lord, listen to the language and think in your mind as, as you hear it, where did he get this from? He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. Just pause there. Anytime you read that phrase, especially in the Old Testament, in heaven and on earth, what does your mind immediately go back to biblically? Genesis 1, 1. What was Genesis 1, 1 actually, and all of Genesis 1, to be honest, what was it showing you about God? There is no other God like our God who could speak the heavens into existence. He's rehearsing Genesis. He goes on to say, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the rest of the Pentateuch. It's Genesis 12 all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. He's summing it up. He's seeing an occasion of dedicating this temple to the one God who created everything and he's rehearsing the scriptures. Before he asks for anything, he's reminding himself and he's reminding the congregation, who are we praying to? This is the God of all human history who has chosen you as a nation and made promises to you and has made a covenant with you and to you who will follow him. <clears throat> he goes on, he says, this God has kept with your servant David these promises, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand. What is that a reference to? What promise did God make? to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
He's just going through the revelation of God and then he pivots, now therefore, O Lord, verse 16, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. He starts to ask, in light of who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be, what the scriptures say, even about this very moment we are in, he's reminding himself and everyone else, who is it that we're about to ask something of? I want you to be careful with that. That doesn't mean that every single time that you open your mouth in prayer, you have to rehearse all the attributes of God in the scripture. I hear that sometimes. We think we need a formal preparatory introduction before we pray anything. And we've got to just kind of go through all of systematic theology. That's not what this is. Like at lunch today when you're praying to bless the food, have you ever rehearsed all systematic theology and then forgot to bless the food? I hear that all the time. I do that sometimes. That's not the idea. The idea is before you ask God of anything, do you realize who it is you're asking? And have you connected your requests to what has been taught to you in the scriptures? You actually pray back the word of God. I suggest to you that's probably one of the best ways and most helpful ways to learn how to pray is as you're reading the scripture, are you learning who God is and are you taking those exact truths and using them as a means and a springboard into intercession? When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, the first request in there, in the whole prayer that he gives is hallowed be your name that's a request but it's prefaced by what our father who is in heaven remind yourself to whom you are praying before you even ask that his name be hallowed it'll flavor everything you do in prayer that would be a helpful motivation to our hearts reminding us that it's God It's not Paul, it's not a pastor, it's not a discipler, it's not a friend who is calling us to respond. It's God. It's a great encouragement. Also, you don't have anything to fear. You have every reason to be confident in prayer because you know what God has said and what God asks from us. If he has asked it of us, he will provide exactly what we need for it to be accomplished in our life. And you see how Paul does that very same thing in verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. That's almost the entire prayer in these two verses, isn't it? The majority of the words are all fixed on rehearsing who God is in light of what he has just said. The very first word of verse 16 in the Greek text is the word himself. This is really interesting. It begins with the word himself. It's singular. But notice that himself refers actually to two persons. Do you see that? Himself refers to Jesus and the Father. Also in this this anticipation of the request, there are 
two activities that are done by himself. He has loved us and he has given us. And those are done by himself who is the Lord Jesus Christ and God who is our Father. And there's actually two singular verbs that comprise the intercession in verse 17. Comfort and strengthen. Who is being asked to comfort and strengthen? It's himself who is the Lord Jesus Christ and God who is our Father. I can't think of a better way to display the divinity of Christ, even the triunity of God, than the way he describes it here. One God and two persons are appealed to. It's similar to how he prayed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 11 when he said the very same thing. He actually opened it the same way. Now himself, our God and Father, and Jesus our Lord, may he direct our way to you. Although in 1 Thessalonians 3, he begins with the Father and then the Son. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2, he starts with the Son and ends with the Father. So what is it that Paul does as he rehearses who God is in light of what God has said? Let's just meditate on every phrase here for a moment. Who is himself? Who is this God? He is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ comfort and strengthen you. The word now is a common Greek particle, day in the Greek, that is most often translated as but. It's not the strongest form to use as a contrast, but it does have some, some mild contrast within its connotation. So it could actually, I think it's helpfully to, to, most helpful to translate this as but, not just now. It is a transition, but it's a slight contrast. Contrasting what? Verse 15. What did he urge in verse 15? Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions. You remember that from last Lord's Day. The great exhortation here is be stable and hold on to, with everything you have, biblical truth. But may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort and strengthen you to that end. What's, what's the contrast? Well, it should not be hard for us to, to understand this. What was the position of the Thessalonians when he wrote this? Well, you remember they were shaken, weren't they? They were unstable, were they not? They had been shaken by extra biblical material that caused them to question much of what they had been taught and they were beginning to, as it were, deconstruct their faith. And haven't you felt that at times? You know you need to be strong. You know you need to be stable. You know what the word, you even want those things, but because of all the pressures from the outside, even the temptations of your heart from the inside, you feel sometimes as if being strong and holding on is absolutely impossible. I don't know if I can keep clinging to this. I feel like I'm about to let go and fatally fall away from the Lord. I think that's how they were feeling. And, and we might understand that if we understood the kind of persecution this church was going through day in and day out. What do you mean, hold on? Hold on to the truth that's getting us persecuted? Really? Right, you, with everything you've got. But 
May God do that in you. May God do that in you. It's as if Paul realizes he's just told them, here's what you have to do. And then he begs God, help them do it. Do you see that? Who is it that he prays to? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Eight times in this letter, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus by this full title, Our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 1, he reminds them our identity as, as a church is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 12, they will be glorified by our Lord Jesus Christ and by his grace. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to gather them and will gain, and they will gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 14. We're commanded and exhorted by the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 12. It will be the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that helps us and them to obey what is in this book, chapter 3, verse 18. From chapter 1 all the way up to this point, it's as if Christ has been a center point, emphasized. He is the one who will give relief to our affliction when he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, chapter 1, verse 7. He is the one in whom we will be glorified, chapter 1, verse 12. He is the one who, when he comes, will destroy the man of lawlessness, chapter 2, verse 8. He is the one who has loved us, chapter 2, verse 13. Who's Paul praying to? The one that he's been describing from the very beginning of the book. All of that is, is in his prayer. It's in his mind as he prays to this Lord Jesus Christ, our sovereign Savior. He also prays to God our Father. Not just the Lord Jesus Christ, but to God who is our Father. It's actually what we refer to as, in, in literature, an envelope. He begins the book by praying to God who is our Father, and he concludes chapter 2 with a prayer to God who is our Father. But he's been describing the nature of God our Father throughout chapters 1 and 2. Our Father is the one in whom you find your identity as a church, chapter 1, verse 1. He is the one from whom all grace comes, chapter 1, verse 2 and 12. He is the one to whom we have constant gratitude, chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 2, verse 13. He is the one in whom all of the churches find their identity, chapter 1, verse 4. He's the one who will respond to our affliction with righteous judgment that proves us worthy of the coming kingdom, chapter 1, verse 5. Our Father is the one who will come to repay our afflictors with justice, chapter 1, verse 6, and will give relief to us, chapter 1, verse 7. He is the one who will count us worthy of our calling, chapter 1, verse 11. He is the one who will send the deluding spirit in the day of the Lord as judgment for unbelief, chapter 2, verse 11. He's the one who has chosen you, chapter 2, verse 13, and called you into salvation, chapter 2, verse 14. That's your father. You belong to him. He belongs to you. He is your provider. He's your protector. He cares for you personally with greater interest and greater intensity than anyone else in the universe. He prays to our Lord Jesus Christ, to God our Father, 
Notice this singular phrase, who has loved us. This is the God who has loved us. Does that refer to the Son or the Father? Yes. You're catching on. Yes. In verse 13, it is the Son who has loved us. We are beloved by the Lord. It's a reference to the Son. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, it says we are beloved by God, the Father. Yes. This one God in these two persons has shown us love. In light of what he's been teaching in this chapter, what would this mean? You're not objects of his wrath. You're the children of his love. He's chosen you and called you into salvation, not judgment. He's loved you. And by the way, this is in what we call in the Greek tense, the aorist tense, meaning it's been completed. It's not something to be done over and over and over. You don't come into it and then lose it, get into it and come out of it. It's settled. He has loved you and he just loved you completely in Christ. There's no come and go with this. It's the God who has loved us. You do remind yourself of that, don't you? There is no ebb and flow to the love of God toward his people. Ever. He cannot ever love you more than he has in Christ. And he will never love you less. He has loved you. We're also told that this is the God who has given to us. He's not only loved us, this is the God who has given to us. He has given to us eternal comfort and good hope. Again, this applies not merely to the Father, but also to that singular person himself, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. God is a giver to his people, not a taker. He is one who lavishes glorious things on us, not wrath. And just like the God who loved us in a settled way, a settled reality, so God has given to us that way. It's Aristotle here also. He has given us, and it's not as if he gives and removes to give again. He's given us, and it's done. It's accomplished. And what is it that he's given us? Think on this, friends. What has God given that he will never take away from you? eternal comfort. Is God calling? I don't don't know who that is. Good timing. Go ahead and turn it off. Don't all look at him, all right? What's he given? Eternal comfort. What's that opposed to in this section? It's opposed to what we read about in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, eternal destruction. For those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they get eternal destruction. But to those who are his people, they are given once and for all eternal comfort. The word comfort is the normal word that we oftentimes simply translate as encouragement. Think through that. God has given never-ending, always-growing encouragement to his people. 
He doesn't just give us information. What he tells us, what he exhorts us to do, he does to encourage us forever. To come alongside us. And who did he say this to? People who it felt like day in and day out, there wasn't anything encouraging to get up for. It's another day of suffering. It's another night of no sleep. It's another night of worrying and being anxious over what's going to happen the next day. No. I'm asking the God who gives eternal comfort, encouragement. And also, what does he give us? What has he given us? Good hope. You understand what this means. Hope refers to our expectations in the future. Our expectations in the future. Not what we wonder about, not what we wish would happen, but we're not sure if it's going to happen. No, hope. A settled, confident reality that the future is good. It's a good hope. It's full of all that is filled in the goodness of God. It's a reminder that what God has in store for his people is not the day of the Lord that comes in wrath and destruction. What he has for you is good hope. What's God's aim for you in your life? It's not punishment. It's not discouragement. It's not to put his foot on your neck. He's not trying to humiliate you. His aim is eternal satisfaction and beneficial expectation in your life. That's what he wants for you. That phrase, who has loved us and given us, the God who has loved us and given us, actually we can't separate those from one another. How do you know that he's loved us? Look at what he's given us. That's how you see it. Now there's one more element that Paul rehearses about God before he turns to ask anything of God. You see what we're rehearsing here? Before you ever get to the prayer, he's, he's rehearsing so much about the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is our Father, the one who loved us, the one who has given us such rich and eternal blessing. One more. It is the God who is gracious. The God who is gracious. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. That is really powerful. By grace. That simple two-word phrase is massive. It describes the means by which he has loved us and given us comfort and hope. How did he love us? How did he give us this? How did he make that a settled fact? He did it by the instrument of grace. Meaning, you did not ever achieve the right to have his love because of who you instinctively are. You did not gain the gifts of God's eternal encouragement and good hope because of your masterful efforts. You do not gain his eternal salvation and rescue from the wrath of God for any other means other than his sovereign, kind, gracious choice to give them to you out of his love. And if he did not show such love to anyone, no one would be saved. You understand that. No one would be saved if he was not gracious to grant it. 
despite yourself, in light of all your circumstances, and despite those circumstances, you have the fullness of God because of a favor he gave to you that you could not earn. As hard as you might try, as righteous as you might look to be, these things are yours in abundance and wealth lavished on you because he is a gracious God. Would you dwell on that in prayer before you ever ask God for something? You're praying to our sovereign, perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our loving, gracious Father, who in his love has given us a forever growing satisfaction and confidence about the future, all by his sovereign grace. How would that change the way you pray for what you would ask of God? Well, you probably wouldn't think on all of that and meditate on all of that and say, God, I need a tenth pair of shoes. What I need is some of those new ripped jeans. You know, not the way they're ripped last year, but there's a new way they're ripped this year, and I need some of those. Or I need a new vacation home. The old vacation home's wearing out. Or I need something else that will make me more significant in this temporary world we live in. You don't think that. You don't say that kind of thing when you think about this kind of God and what he has done and given you. It changes the way you think and pray. This is the God who solves your fears because he's loved you and he's given you eternal, glorious, good things in Christ. That's a great model for how to pray. Rehearse who God is in light of what he has been teaching you in the word. It's another way to simply say, pray according to the scriptures. Pray according to the scriptures. Let's look at a second element involved in praying for God's people to apply God's word. Start by rehearsing who God is in light of what he asks us to do. Then let's turn to our request. Secondly, ask God to accomplish what he has instructed. Ask God to accomplish what he has instructed. May this God comfort and strengthen. This is where the requests actually come in, in verse 17. May he comfort, may he strengthen. This is the perfect way to pray for God's people in applying God's word. What God has said will be in line with who God is and we should pray in line with that. That's why he says comfort and strengthen. Why? What was the problem of the Thessalonians? They were shaken and agitated. They needed comfort and strength. They were shaken and disturbed over instruction that did not come from God. Some so-called spiritual expert had arrived on the scene and told them something that Paul had not told them, had not revealed. It was contrary to what Paul revealed. And they were shaken. They were disturbed. Paul's instruction, inspired by the Spirit in line with the rest of the Scripture, was given then to comfort them. That's why he gave them all of this detail, to settle their hearts down, to strengthen them so that they would not back away from the faith, that they would be stable. That's why he kept teaching them over and over and over. The word comfort is again the same word of encouragement 
It's the same word for encouragement. May he encourage you. So may the God of all encouragement encourage you and strengthen you. Take your shaken mind and your disturbed hearts and stabilize them. These last words, strengthen your hearts, is actually anticipating what's coming in chapter 3. It's one of the expressions of their being shaken is their They're not going to church anymore. They're abandoning their responsibilities to their family to provide because they're so fearful. They're so wrapped up. They're they're shrinking away from society. He's anticipating it. I, I think this is such a helpful note. As a pastor, as a parent, as a discipler, as a friend, one of the activities that that we have in these roles is to sit down with someone and to give them instruction. And when they don't do what we've instructed them to do, what tends to happen in our heart? We get frustrated. It's all right, you can say, well, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with them. You spend so much time, you're teaching, you're exhorting, you're instructing, you're patiently meeting with them. You're pouring yourself out to them. It's like you're going over the same problem again that you you should have solved last year. And it's often a very, very slow process. It's one step forward, and sometimes it feels like it's three or four steps back. The next week, we we get another step forward, but we, we drop another two the next week. Or maybe you've had this experience. You've been pleading. You've been talking. You, you don't feel like there's anything left you can say and the person just isn't budging. And you feel exasperated. You want to give up. It's almost as if you get inside your heart, you say, I don't care anymore. I'm kind of belligerent about this. I'm tired of trying. I'm not going to tell you anymore. I'm done. I've been patient enough. Have you ever said that? I've been patient enough. You've never said that when praying to God. You better not say that (laughs) when praying. After how many times he has been patient with us? Think about this. Paul had already written them a letter about the second coming in 1 Thessalonians. And he gave them almost two entire chapters out of the five chapters. Instruction on the coming of the Lord to comfort them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. Information that if they would take that information, it should make them resilient about what they're going through. And yet here he is writing another letter. And he's not expressing any exasperation here. He's not impatient with them. What does he do? Instead of express his frustration, what does he do? He prays. He prays. This is why it's so instructive to my own heart. You know what the sure sign of prayerlessness is? Exasperation. Frustration with the process. I I don't know what to do anymore. I've said everything I can say and I'm, I'm getting tired of this. So have you been begging God relentlessly, knocking, 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 asking, asking, asking for him to take his own word and make it effective in their hearts? Did you ever think that maybe 
He's trying to teach you, the discipler, you, the parent, you, the pastor, something about instruction. Paul is just praying for God to do the very things that he just labored for an entire chapter to instruct them about. Now God, make it effective. You can't just preach, you can't just teach, you can't just study and disciple. You have to pray and pray and pray and pray for God to make effective what his word calls us to do. Let me give you a third element involved in effectively praying for God's people to apply the word. A third element. Ask God to impact the heart. Ask God to impact the heart. May he comfort and strengthen, it's very clear, isn't it? Your hearts. Your hearts. Well, the circumstances of the Thessalonians were not the cause of their disturbance. You say, what? That's right. Persecution was not the reason they were shaken. Persecution was not the reason why they were disturbed. Their external oppressors were not to be blamed for a lack of encouragement or stability. And do you notice Paul is not praying for their circumstances to change? How insensitive of him. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, to pray for a lessening of the persecution. But what would be even more helpful? Not just to pray for less persecution. Strengthen their hearts. Encourage their hearts. He doesn't pray for their circumstances to change. He prays for their hearts to change. What is the heart? It's the inner person. It's the inner person. Now, I'm not, believe it or not, I'm not going to take the whole, all the time to unpack what the Bible says the heart is. Let's just suffice it to say, and you can bear it out later, it's everything that makes up your internal person. It is your soul. It is your spirit. It includes the way you think. It's your mind. The heart includes how you feel. It's your emotions. It includes your motivations, that is your affections. The heart is the spirit, the soul, the inner person. And when we talk about the heart, we're not to think of the heart in some kind of tripartite way. It's not, the heart is not, in one part of the heart, there's the mind, and in another part of the heart, there's the emotions, and in another part of the heart, there's the, the will or the affections. No, they're all interrelated with each other. You cannot separate them from one another. You know, we often talk about the feel, think, know pattern. What do you feel? It's connected to how you think. You need to change that by what you know. That's helpful. But the reality is you can't separate those things from one another. And you, you can't disconnect them in any way. The emotions are tied to the mind and the mind is what drives the emotions and you don't have thoughtless emotions. Which is one of the things we need to be careful of. We can't just look at someone and say, stop, stop just being led by your feelings as if they're not being led by their mind. You can't separate those. The, where do you think the feelings come from? Thinking. You say, well... 
I don't know about that. I, I just all of a sudden have this flush of emotions. Sometimes we call it a panic attack. Well, even a panic attack comes from habitual ways you have thought about things in the past. You have, you have thought about them so much in the past that it just rushes on you in a moment. You don't even know where it comes from. And it feels like it's disconnected, but in reality, it's not. It's all connected. You're not going to have thinking that is emotionless. I don't even think we want that in anybody. You want emotionless thinking? <laughs> no. I think it's absurd to assume that you can just think and not feel. Feeling is the ultimate outflow of how we think. It's all a part of the heart. Our motivations are not merely what we think or what we feel or what we decide and why we decide. Motivations can't be removed from our thinking. Motivations can't be removed from what we feel. That's all what comprises the heart. It's what Proverbs 4.23 says. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Why do you watch over your heart with all diligence? Because from the heart flow the springs of life. What are the springs of life? It's not just your thinking. It's everything about you. That's why we call the heart the inner person, the inner internal aspect of your personhood. That's why Paul is praying that they would have comfort or encouragement and stability in their inner person. If nothing changes on the outside, and there's no way we can change the outside. We, we are not God, and we usually don't have the ability to change all of our external circumstances. And some of you have tried, and you've tried, and you've found that the grass is not greener. Moving changing jobs, ignoring this or that, hasn't really changed the heart. That's why Paul is praying for that. And he wants them to be comforted and strengthened by all the instruction he has just given them in chapter 2 in their heart. He's, he knows the truth that the heart has to be affected. By encouragement. By the way, encouragement is tied to the emotions. Encouragement is something you not just think, it's how you think that leads you to feel a certain way that motivates you to live a certain way and act a particular way. Stability that comes from your heart, it's the response that flows from what motivates the inner person to do and choose what it does. That's why we, we often say we want to aim instruction at the heart. Well, what do we mean by that? At the whole inner person. And I want you to notice, Paul is praying for this to happen. He's praying for God to affect the heart with encouragement and strength because his instruction alone is insufficient. It requires God to do this. God must penetrate the whole inner person with the truth. It is one thing to show up at church on Sunday and get all jazzed because it was a really good Sunday and then you leave here and Monday hits. Well, where's the jazz now? It's gone. So what are you doing? You're praying that it's not just some experience alone that we had 
as we're thinking on all these things, but it's Monday we, we hit the world and we're praying, God, strengthen, encourage the heart, the inner person to respond in how we're thinking about it and thus how we're feeling and what we're doing with it. You can get practical all you want. Let's get real practical in our teaching and our preaching and our parenting and we can urge and we can plead and we can even cry. Those might be good, sincere things to do when you're teaching someone. But if God doesn't encourage and strengthen the heart, the heart isn't encouraged or strengthened. We change no one. Right? We change no one. We have one Savior. There is one Holy Spirit. He is the heart surgeon. We're, we're tools and instruments in his hands. He changes the heart. So pray. Pray that he will. Let's look at a last element, a fourth element involved in effectively praying for God's people to apply the word. Ask God to enable our actions. Ask God to enable our actions. This is really interesting. Comfort, he's praying for God to comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Essentially what Paul is praying for is that God will work through our works and words. What do I mean by that? There's the phrase there, in every good work and word. It's a very important phrase. It begins with a very significant preposition, in. And that in governs the whole phrase. It refers to the instruments by which God will encourage and strengthen them. What tools will God use by his grace to strengthen and to encourage our hearts? What tools does he use? Is it just magic? Presto, we pray, God, just make it happen. That's not what he's saying. God, make it happen by means of using the instruments of their works and words. Do you see that? This is interesting. What is the wrench that God uses to tighten the bolts that stabilize life? Your good works and your good words. Now keep in mind, our words and our works do not grant us and they do not earn us salvation. They don't even cooperate with God to achieve salvation. Our works and our words are instruments by which God's grace alone enables us to grow in the salvation that he has freely given us. We are sanctified through our good works and words. We will be glorified in our good works and words because he has granted sovereignly salvation to us. And what are these good works and what are these good words? Whatever is defined by the nature of God as good, whatever works 
are in line with the goodness of God and the words that are in line with the goodness of God, these are good works and good words. God impacts the heart with the truth that has been taught so that it is intellectually convinced, emotionally enlivened, motivationally driven to actually act and speak according to his truth. And those actions driven by the heart that God has moved cause you to be strengthened and encouraged in truth. So you're not praying for people to just sit and experience strength and comfort. You're praying that they would be comforted, they would be encouraged as they act on the truth they have heard because God has moved on their heart to do that. That's a perfect way to pray for people. It's a perfect way to pray for people to apply the word. We're praying for God to do his work. And he's going to use our works and words to accomplish that. Certainly, he's going to use Paul's words to accomplish that in their hearts. These are the good words of God. Paul's actions, he's going to use those to strengthen. And he's praying that they won't stop doing good works. That they'll do even more and find more strength. If you lack the encouragement and stability that you're wanting, have you ever noticed that you may not be acting in faith on what God has said? Trust his word. Act on his word in faith and watch the strengthening and the encouragement come by the work of God in your heart. Do you see how we're to pray for God's people to apply God's word? So you've had conversations today with people. You might have some more as we depart today. Tomorrow morning, when you get up and maybe you have your quiet time and you're beginning to think of some of those conversations, how will you pray for those people you've had conversations with today? Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? What are the frustrations in that discipling relationship? Parents? Friends? Teachers? Elders? Are we studying prayerfully like Paul prays? Are we teaching prayerfully the way Paul prays for those he's been teaching? You're doing some counseling with people? Some really hard issues? Really difficult circumstances? How are you praying? How are you praying for them to apply the word? Ask yourself, what are you studying? What are you studying in the word? What are you reading? Have you prayed that you would respond to what you're reading and you're studying this way? Are you actually begging God to accomplish truth or are you just begging the person that you're talking to? Do you teach just to hit the mind? Do you, teach to, do you teach to engage the person? Do you teach just to try to motivate something emotionally, think you can do that without engaging the mind? 
No, hit the heart. Do you pray that God will change people as they actually act on what they've heard? This is how you pray for people to apply the word. We should do that every Sunday, right? So we should probably pray now. Let's pray. You are our Father. You're our sovereign Savior. And you have given us everything we need to grow in Christ. And now we pray, Lord, that what we have heard will impact us from the inside out. That we'll think about the responses that need to be present in us. In light of what you have said, bring conviction, establish encouragement, strengthen the feeble knees and make them strong to stand firm. Remind us that your grace will accomplish this, your kindness and favor will do it. I pray we leave this place encouraged, prepared to act and to speak in ways that represent your goodness. Lord, as we even now finish out the Lord's day and we anticipate the the holiday weekend, I pray we would be reminded by what Christ has done for us in the cross. How he lived perfectly to satisfy your righteousness. That Jesus is the expression of love from the Trinity to take on human flesh and give himself as a sacrifice acceptable to you and in our place. I pray for the unbelieving heart to turn to this Christ who will save them. And I pray for those of us who know you that will respond in repentance, continued repentance and belief and trust in that work that Jesus has done and that you, Father, have applied to our hearts. We pray, Lord God, that you will strengthen your people today so that when we leave here, we invest ourselves for your glory for the sake of the kingdom. Now, as we identify ourselves as your people through these elements. Remind us of what a costly sacrifice it was and how gracious you are. And let that enliven our hearts to do the works and to say the words that would be used effectively by your grace to change hearts and let the world see the character of Christ in us. We pray.